Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, pregnancy-focused chiropractor, Dr. Elliot Berlin. My guest today is a Venezuelan-born former Spanish-language media leader whose experience with her daughter's birth changed her career and her life. Now, she's a successful doula and birth educator and host of the very popular podcast, Birthful. Adriana Lozada, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. I feel that we've been connecting and not connecting for years, and it's mm -hmm. such a delight to talk to you, for sure. I always feel like I'm in the same puzzle as you, and we're pieces of that puzzle, and we're always working together even when we're not communicating directly. Well said, yeah. And I couldn't ask for a better puzzle mate. Ah, uh, that's very sweet. Yeah. No, likewise. <laughs> I have so much to talk about because you have such an interesting career and you're doing such great work. Before we get there, let's start at the beginning. Where are you from originally? So I was born in Venezuela and I was doing the math recently. I think now I've evened it out, the amount of time I lived there and the amount of time that I lived in the United States. And I've lived in other places too. But, you know, like I was in Venezuela up until I was 10, then we are here in the U.S., 10 to 13. Then I went back and did high school there. So it's always been a lot of moving around. What languages do you speak? <laughs> so English and Spanish are just both back and forth, same thing, right? Like For you. Okay. They're you... both my mother tongues, I would say, right? If such a thing. Do you think um, in both languages? I can, yeah. I'm just curious how it works. If you're talking English conversation, then are you thinking in English? And then if you're talking in Spanish, you're thinking in Spanish? Exactly. Oh. And then I find if I've traveled, so if I've traveled to a Spanish-speaking country for a while, I'll start dreaming in Spanish. Oh. And then while I'm in the U.S., I'll just dream in English. It's just, you know, your brain works that way. And I did a gap year after high school to Japan. Oh, so wow. I have very, like, Japanese high school level. <laughs> wow, it seems like a hard language. It was yeah. really interesting. But I remember once I felt like, ah, I've got this where it's not a struggle is when I started having some dreams in Japanese. Like, that's oh. my litmus Wow, test. that's a benchmark. Yeah. I speak fluent Spanish, but only colors. Okay. Amarillo. Yeah. But uh, it's something. 
I don't dream, so I don't know what language I would be dreaming in. Now, hold on. You just don't remember your dreams. Oh, boy. We're Everybody dreams. I just became the guest <laughs> and you became the host. I mean, it's possible that I don't remember my dreams, but I don't remember having dreamt yep. anything. I just go to sleep and then I wake up and it's as if there was nothing in between. Sometimes the dog like gets his tail in my face and I remember that. You remember that? Yeah. That's what my yeah. mom says, that she doesn't dream, but it's just that you dream. You don't remember it. Like, that's part of our brains. But I didn't fully answer your question in terms of languages. So Spanish and English, Japanese, I butcher really well French and German. Ooh. And I do Portuguese, but that one's almost like cheating because it's so similar to Spanish. The Spanish. Wow. But still, that's a lot of languages. Even to just have a cursory understanding of some of them, that's that's great. You could go almost anywhere. Almost anywhere. Communicate. Wow. I mean, love traveling, yeah. Okay, so we talked about Spanish language media. Was that your initial career? That was, so my background is communications, and part of that moving around, I did my undergraduate in Montreal, and that's where the French comes in as well. But I wasn't studying in French. I was studying in English, but, you know, you're basically living in a dictionary when you're in Montreal, so you pick it up. <laughs> hey. Yeah. And after graduating, we went back to Venezuela, and one of my dreams was to start a, you know, like the city guides, like the voice in New York, you know, every city has their own, right? Yeah. Their tabloid size weekly thing. And there were a few of them in Montreal and Caracas didn't have any. So it was my dream to create that. And you know, things lined up and it was the right time and right place. And we actually got to do that crazy adventure. And it was specifically for youth media. Like I'm talking before internet, right? So this was like 95 when it launched and it was a perfect timing for it. And it became a huge hit. Like before you had to fax your ideas to the newspaper. <laughs> That's how old oh, no. it is. I wonder if it was you that can... curly fax with the thermo <laughs> printing. That was it. And so Yeet. the first day we launched, the fax was going off the hook. Like paper was just rolling through. People were so excited. So that turned into all kinds of media stuff. We did clothing company and like a radio. That's where we come full circle. I had a radio show. Ah, okay. What was that yeah. about? Well, no, everything we talked about with that company, that media outlet, or all the different media, because we did book publishing and the radio and award ceremony and the newspaper. Like, it was intensely crazy fun. It was all for youth media. So it was, you know, 15 to 25 year olds. That was a broad target. And wow. yeah. And then we jumped into the internet. So I kind of lived the internet 1.0 rise and uh, bust of that. Uh, yeah, yeah. The noisy modems. The noisy modems, yeah. Wow, you just took me on a whole tour through my uh, <laughs> life and development. Yeah, interesting. I had a radio show in college, and I never really expected to come full circle with that either. But Life's weird that way. Here we are. Okay, so now you do something very different, but somewhat similar. And the pivotal point, as you mentioned in the intro, was when I had my daughter. And before that, if you couldn't already tell, I was very much, you know, very type A achiever, blah, 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 with the six languages and so forth. Yes, <laughs> it came through. <laughs> and then having a child was one of those things that I just 
obviously I wanted to have a child and I wanted the experience, but it was almost something on the list, right? Of like, oh, and also have a kid. Not that I, yeah, I mean, and I hate saying it like that, but there was something about that, right? But I didn't know anything about what that entailed and the huge life transformation and yeah, that it would set me on this path. But I approached that from that journalistic point of view. So once I was pregnant, I read everything, tried to absorb all the information. And the more I did, the angrier I got because I realized that the person doing the work is not the one being centered. Uh, As the pregnant or laboring person? Yeah, yeah. So the pregnant person is not the one being centered. It's the baby being centered. Ah, interesting. And it's almost like you're a vessel for this baby. And that's where we can get into really interesting conversations about, you know, body autonomy and how policies are established. And granted, this was when we weren't talking about these things in the media. This was my daughter's 18, so a while ago. And the more I read, like, at that point with my media background, I was fired up to do something like the truth campaign for tobacco, but the equivalent for For pregnancy, perinatal, yeah. Birth? Wow. Okay, this is very interesting. I didn't know this about you, so I'm about to learn a lot, and so is everybody else who's listening. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get into the juicy details. (laughs) This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. Welcome back. We're talking to Adriana Lozada. Okay, your daughter's 18, my son's 19. So we had our first kids around the same time. Where were you? So (laughs) I was at the same place that I am now, which was that in itself was something to get very used to and adapt to in my mind, but it's Rochester, New York. My husband is from here. So I am on, it's getting there. We're on Lake Ontario. So we're closer to Canada. So like if you drew a vertical line through the lake from Toronto down, you'd hit Rochester. Oh, okay. So you go up to the falls? The falls are about an hour away. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Buffalo and the falls. So that's where you were when you had your baby. Is it more of a big city or more of a small town feel? It's a city. It's like a smaller city. I don't, I shouldn't know what the population is. I don't know it. Whatever. When you were done, it was one more. Yeah. 
<laughs> it was one more. <laughs> but how we landed here was my husband and I met in New York City, and then we decided we were sick of the city. And in that adventurous type of thing, he'd been sailing all his life. I had not, but he said his dream was to live on a sailboat. I am from the Caribbean. I love the sea and I'm good at navigating. So I was like, how hard can it be? So we lived on a sailboat for a year. Oh, wow. And that's when we were trying to sail to Venezuela. That didn't work. And so we got pregnant and sailed north because the wind was blowing north. And the idea was just to have this kid on the sailboat and just, you know, not on the sailboat, but like. During your sailing adventure. Sail with the kid. Yeah. And we met some families out in the water. It's a really neat community that had like two-year-old and a five-year-old. And we figured we'll just do that. And then it was hurricanes that got me to Rochester because while we came back, I was pregnant. We came up to Rochester to visit family. That was the year before Katrina. So it's 2005 and four hurricanes made landfall that year in Florida. And I was fearing for my house while trying to nest. And so that's when I said, nope, we're selling the boat and Rochester it is. <laughs> okay. So that's how you end up in Rochester. Mm -hmm. um, now, you started to say before the break that when you were pregnant, that you had the observation, the realization that everything in or most of the things in pregnancy are centered around the baby, almost as if the mother was just a little incubator. Mm -hmm. and a little vessel. Yeah. A little vessel. And that didn't feel right to you. Can you tell me more about how that unfolded and what you thought about it or did about it? Yeah. So I had that desire to do something about it. But at the same time, I was like, eight months pregnant, right? So I was just needed to focus on having the baby first. And I was not familiar with the perinatal world at all. So didn't have a doula, you know, just had what I read from that pregnant person's point of view. I did hire a midwife. So it was midwives in the hospital. And the thing is, my baby was breached the whole time. Oh, wow. mm -hmm. She's breached the whole time and around 36 weeks, she was still breached. So they said, how about we try an external version? And the head of OB at the hospital at that time was really successful with those, had a great track record. He was confident. We did them and it worked. And she stayed head down until 41 weeks. Oh, she popped back up? Nope, nope. That's oh, when my labor baby. started. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought you were like, and then she, I and was like, she oh my know. gosh. Okay. Right? So before pregnancy or in the earlier parts of your pregnancy, did you give thought to your birth intentions, how you wanted, what choices you would want to make? Yeah, I wanted as unmedicated a birth as possible. And what, what drove that? The stuff that I read about the benefits to the baby, and I really wanted to be able to be a participant in the process. And, you know, there was the fear of the cascade of interventions. I've never really had much time in hospitals. So wasn't too thrilled with that. And I don't know that it was more than that. Okay. But yeah. I mean, those seem great, but no doula. So midwives at the hospital and at 41 weeks, baby has now been head down for a bit and your labor started. Labor started at 4 a.m. And that baby was posterior 
and was persistent posterior. So that was intense pain the whole time, and it didn't ease up in between contractions. Oh, you still felt that intensity even when there was no surge? Exactly, which well, is in, so, so crazy, right? Like in your lower, lower back, like mm -hmm. where you feel like you're going to break in half? Yeah. And so that was hours that I, and I say I didn't have an epidural because I'm too stubborn, basically. <laughs> I can see that. Okay. Right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so for AM, when it starts, it starts with contractions. No, there were like period cramps, sort of sensations every half an hour, and then they kind of started building. It wasn't until 7 p.m. that they got to that mythical 311, 511, whatever. Okay. Of, Let's go to the uh, hospital now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then is that when you went? Yeah. Okay. And what happens next? So I got there and I am four centimeters. Is and that what you expected? Oh, not at all. I mean, hell no. <laughs> I thought you, I was going to like be nine, almost 10, ready to go. Of course, because it had been intense back labor all day long. Yeah. I was just waiting for it to get to this. And I'd figure, okay, now we're ready to go. And we get there and it wasn't. But things did progress kind of like now I think back on it. And I know that things progressed kind of quickly. At the moment, I didn't think so. So we got to the hospital around seven. By the time I get to the room, and it was getting to be at that point just a miserable experience, you know, because I was just trying to get through the sensations, through that pain. And I was being extremely loud. I was very good at vocalizing because that was my coping mechanism because I didn't have a doula to make suggestions of like, move this way. And, you know, she would have told me not to sit on the top of my stairs for seven hours without moving oh, wow. just grinning through it so the best story here's was my real experience with labor land though at one point i'm kind of sitting down in a little birthing squatting stool and my midwife comes in and she says let me check you and i was like no 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 i'm really miserable at this point i'm like no no don't check me she's like let me check you i think you'll like the answer and so she checked i'm fine and she checks me and she says you're nine and I got to tell you, Elliot, I was so miserable. I looked at her and with from the bottom of my heart, I said, I thought you were going to say 11, which of course <laughs> there is an 11. <laughs> and I meant it. That's labor land for you, right? It's yeah. a different altered state. So just like you laughed, everybody else in the room laughed. And that really lifted the energy in the room i realized what i'd said i laughed and then i was pushing shortly after that oh i love laughter during labor it was so pivotal it was so pivotal and so then i pushed for about two hours a little before that and she was born so that check was i want to say maybe like at 11 something and then my daughter was born at 12 55 a.m mm. wow. on our anniversary Holy moly. You mean right <laughs> after midnight? That day was yeah, your anniversary? Yeah, so 12.55, yeah. Wow. Oh, important day in your life. Yeah. I see so. Okay, so in retrospect, because that doesn't sound, well, it sounds like a, a very uncomfortable labor, mm -hmm. but, you know, more than typical. But it doesn't sound like a quote-unquote bad birth experience. 
Well, so here was the thing. And in terms of hours, like the first contraction was at 4 a.m. and she was born just before 1 a.m. So not 24 hours for a posterior labor start to finish from first contraction. That's pretty good. Like I would now as a doula say that. But that's what really put me into the path to being a doula because I realized and it went hand in hand with what I was reading and thinking during pregnancy of like, huh, nobody's supporting the person giving birth. And so even though I had my midwife, my husband was there, my mom, like I had all these people supporting me. It was a really lonely experience and miserable. And so if you looked at my birth plan, I got everything that was on the plan. Check on paper, right? Like on paper, it looked great except for the posterior labor, mind you. But the experience, what I experienced wasn't because I felt like nobody told me it was going to be like that and nobody was helping me to navigate it. Mm. So that's where, I mean, yes, a doula would have helped. And both and my husband do agree that not having a doula was a stupid decision for us. (laughs) But then that put me on the path of the doula and discovering a little bit more of what is it that's missing. It's not just about getting a baby out. It's about having a good birth experience as the person defines it. Yeah, and supported, Mm -hmm. supported experience. Well, that's really interesting. I see lots of people come out of their birth experience and feel like they weren't happy with the outcome. Not that the baby's not healthy and that they're not healthy, but that the experience wasn't healthy for them. And there's a lot of different reasons why they might feel that way. But I think if you just told your birth story, I went into labor, I had back labor, I labored at home for a lot, I got there, I was frustratingly underdilated, and then pushed through it anyway, got to my 10 centimeters, not 11, and pushed my child out. You know, it sounds like most people would be like, oh, that sounds like a good birth, (laughs) you know? But there's a lot more to it than the physical getting a baby out of your body, is what I'm hearing you say. Uh And it sounds like that launched a career for you in trying to make sure that people have a much deeper level of support and care, mind, body, and spirit care during this process. So I love that you sort of took lemons and made lemonade. And when you felt like something wasn't right for you, you got up, brushed yourself off and said, let's make it better for other people. I'm going to take another break. When we come back, I want to find out all the things that you're doing now along those lines of supporting people in birth. We'll be right back. (laughs) Hey, everyone. It's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally. Omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new Omega-3 Soft Gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back. We are talking to birthful host Adriana Lozada 
okay, so after media and after sailing around the world, you get to this checkbox, let's have a kid, and you find that pregnancy is not a very mother-focused experience and also under-informed and maybe a little, in some ways, underprepared. Because in other ways, I feel like if you just didn't have all this outside noise and the system that we have right now, you could, on the other hand, just close your eyes and not have anybody around you and just trust on the hard wiring and probably have a mind-blowing experience like that. Well, and I think what I needed for that, that I didn't understand then, is that, yeah, my body was doing the physiology and obviously did it and I had a kid. What I wasn't clued into was the need for me to introspect and connect with that experience and embrace the experience. Like, yes, the back labor was really hard to embrace <laughs> for anybody. That would have been a lot. However, if I had the point of view of, yes, this is hard, but you can get through it. Whereas I just felt blindsided. It's really what happened. Like it did it, but afterwards I was almost like PTSD of what just happened. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, we're like the other animals and a lot of ways we're not. And we live in a different society where we do have information. And also the process is a little bit different. You know, the elephant's not going to the hospital to have her baby. So there are things you need to know. You are now full of birth, birthful in your life. Tell me all the things that you do and how you incorporate your experience into what you bring to your clients and to your audience. Yeah. So I've been a birth doula now since 2007 and been doing the birthful podcast since 2014, which that alone is my knowing oh, that it's coming like up on a decade. Years, yeah. Right? Wow. Yeah. Before it was cool. Before everybody had a podcast. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and so I find that like through the births, that was a journey and a quest of a discovery in itself because we were going to the births and then I would see, we would get to the pushing stage and it's like, oh, yay, you're 10. Now I'm going to hold this leg for two hours and you're going to be draining your energy with each push. And by the time you get to meet your baby, you're going to be exhausted. Like, that was an experience I was seeing a lot and thinking, this can't be right. I'm sure that this is not how mothers or birthing people and their kids are supposed to meet each other from a place of exhaustion and really dwindling confidence. And so in that quest was part of starting the podcast where by speaking to perinatal professionals and new parents, and the new parents tell me their stories and the perinatal professionals tell me different parts of what they do. And you probably have the same point of view as the host, as a creator and host, we get to hear all that and connect dots. And it was in those connecting of the dots of that unique point of view that I was like, aha, hold on a second. It's physiology. And we need to figure out how to support physiology and how the system is set up because it's a medical system. It's set up to safeguard in case that something goes wrong. But while doing that, unintentionally, it interferes with birth physiology. And when it's makes going it right. Yes. And so it right. makes it so much harder to do it. Yeah. So then that's where that disconnect of the experience comes in, too. Hmm. And 
at the end, yes, it's uncertain and we can't determine what's going to happen. But that's when I sit like with my clients and try to focus on how they want to feel. And I wish that that was what was missing for me, how they want to feel during the experience and just say three words because we don't know the details of what it's going to be. But you could have a, you know, compassionate, supported, joyous cesarean. Yes. How you get there doesn't matter. It's how you experience it that matters and sets you up for parenting and minimizes mental health issues. Like it is a huge transformation of your identity. And we don't value it as much when we think of a mechanical process whereby a baby comes out of this body vessel. I think that how do you want to feel is such a great question because if I'm hearing you right, you're saying you can't always control every turn in the labor process. You know where you're starting, pregnant and a healthy baby inside you. You know your destination that you want to get to, pregnant with a healthy baby on the outside. But there's a million ways to get from point A to point B. And even if you have intentions and you say, I'd like to take this particular route, once you start, you're not driving a precision vehicle. It's more like a hot air balloon. And you kind of have to go with the winds to a degree. But even as you're taking those detours or navigating that journey, how do you want to feel along the way is so powerful because whichever path you end up taking, there is still some control over how you feel and how you're being supported. I love that. The closest I can relate to is uh, when we painted our house and the interior designer came into each room and she's like, how do you want to feel when you come into this room? Mm. And it was like based on that, that she picked colors and that she picked decor. So this is obviously quite different, but I can see how that could be really useful and something to even sort of visualize and prepare for and whoever's around you, whoever's on your birth team, you know, for them to really tap into that as well. Yeah. And then that goes hand in hand with, in terms of control, how you can control how you show up, right? So you can't control circumstances, but you can control how you show up. And if you decided one of the wishes that you had is to feel calm if you're not feeling calm so then let's talk about that how can we help you come back to calm or do we need to pause the room or do we need to change the lighting like then it allows the birth is not prescriptive it becomes very unique to what you need at every time in that communication to support your physiology and then the other thing that I do and I'm very passionate about is I do workshops in my childbirth education classes are very much rooted in that learning about physiology. Because what birth asks of you is all these sort of soft skills that we don't value generally as a society. So we like, you know, certainty and timeliness and things organized and goal-oriented, not process. And birth is all about the messy. Yeah. So, Yeah. That's what I was thinking when you were saying that. Like, yeah, yeah, like not too much fluid everywhere. No, that's not how it goes. Even messy feelings. I'm feeling happy and pain and joy and, but I can do it. But now I don't like, it's such a mishmash. Yeah, there's no neat lines. No. And so we're not good at doing that. So by anchoring things in physiology, I give like my clients homework of things they can do to support that physiology and actually use these skills that we do value, like doing homework and completing checklists to learn those soft skills that birth asks of and that postpartum asks of, because that's where baby lives. They live in that non-thinking brain unconscious subconscious reality and you need to go and meet them to communicate 
And that starts with birth. So we really dwelled deep into how to figure that out, which goes back to having it be a better experience for everyone involved. Are your workshops in person or virtual or both? Both. Definitely both. Even people who are not in Rochester. Yes, everybody can go. (laughs) And I've traveled. I, you know, I did do one a few years ago pre-COVID in LA. I think it was 2018. Did you sail over here? I wish. No, we can't sail over that. That would be too long of a Uh, go around. Oh my god. Cut through Panama. Yeah, that would be still long but entertaining. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So right now the things that you do, you have doula services. Is that also virtual? Do you do virtual doula? You know, I did a little bit and it's not as powerful, I think, as when you're in person for me. So I stopped doing the virtual, but I did do them for a while. But I do not quite as senseless as virtual chiropractic. That I don't know how you do. You can't. But the (laughs) difference I would think between being in person with somebody as a doula and being virtual is a world apart. I mean, if that's all you have. Right. You know, it's going to be better than not having support like that, but such a world of difference. So you do mostly in-person doula work. In-person doula work. I do, well, the Birthful podcast, then the workshops and the classes are all at birthfulcourses.com. Are those live or pre-structured or both? Those are pre-recorded. So anybody can start at any time. At any point, I feel that. And if I get enough people, then I do a live one. But I find that it's so hard to time everybody. And people really like doing things at their own pace. So, yeah. yeah. And, you know, at home, comfortable, mm-hmm. you know, on the so sofa. Birthfulcourses.com, Birthful Podcast. And I also do, and these are in Rochester or online, sleep consultations. So that was the next thing I got in the path of perinatal help. I feel there are many great lactation support people, like IBCLCs that you can see, but there's very few people helping with sleep in a way that is also physiological and sort of nurtured base. For the child. And the family. Oh, yeah. Thank you. For everybody. I'm going to have to come to Rochester and find out. Well, we can do virtual. We can do virtual. I want to be in the room. (laughs) Okay. Okay. You can come. I will be happy for you to come. I'll go Um, see the falls. (laughs) Yeah. But with the sleep, it's about making it so it's long-term sustainable and not just like a fight for a minute that you have to do over and over again. I'm really curious about your methods there, but I have a title for you, IBCL sleep. IBCL sleep. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to register it now. (laughs) (laughs) It's all yours. Okay. God, I could talk to you forever. Do you have any closing thoughts as we're winding down? Yes. Closing thoughts. I think that birth flows best when the person doing the birthing is centered, but they need to understand what that means, right? They need to take the reins that they're doing the birth and not others are doing it for them. And culturally, we have this idea that others do it for you. We ask permission of our care providers to do stuff or they give us permission and it should be a collaborative care. One of the things that infuriates me more than anything is how did we get culturally, how did we get to a place where you need a stranger to put their hands in your vagina to tell you about a process that's happening in your body? You never see the elephants do that. Or anybody. 
And then we rely on that. Like that could be, I've seen it. I don't know if you've seen it in hospitals be like, you're four, you're seven. Oh, that was not a great check. Now you're four. Yeah. It's not why, a, right. Why did we even go based on those numbers? So I guess that would be my shift in perspective of how are you going to do your birth? As you say that, I remember the contrast. I stopped doing do the work about a year ago, but the oh. contrast between home birth and hospital birth, and it's a generalization, but it's something that I saw again and again, that in the hospital, the patient is constantly asking, can I do this? Can I have this drink? Can I eat that snack? Can I go pee? Can I wear this? You know, it's all these can I's. But in our system, really, all of our providers work for us. So as the person who's giving birth, the providers work for you. And it, it really seems like it should be the other way around. And at home birth, it generally is the other way around. If I'm like, oh, is it okay to use this towel? <laughs> you know, the mom will tell me, yes, I could use this towel or no, I can't use this towel. And it's just everything. Like if they're hungry, they'll ask for something to eat or we're asking them, do you want something to eat or something to drink? It's a totally different dynamic. And, hmm. you know, to see the difference when you're in the driver's seat versus not even the passengers, like the back seat over the hump in the middle sometimes yeah. is what it looks like. So yeah, um, it's that difference between self-efficacy, self-determination and compliance. Ah. And the hospital system is set up and the hierarchical structures of it and our relationship to the medical system is set up so that we comply a lot. So it's hard to be self-determined in that space. And so the question is, how do you get there? Because that's what birth needs of you. Yeah. I mean, I do sometimes see my patients that want that. They want to be told constantly, like, this is exactly what you have to do. And we'll essentially do it for you, but just follow or comply with our instructions and our guidelines. But I feel like the majority of people don't really want that if they know there's an option. Mm -hmm. So... And then the hospital birth course oftentimes is just, it's informative, but it's also kind of an instruction on how to be a good patient. And yeah. so I prefer out-of-hospital birth courses where it's neutrality. You know, all we care about is you. Uh, Adriana, I appreciate you. And thank you for sharing your story. And thank you for sharing your journey, um, not just your birth story, but your whole journey and some of your magic with us. Where can we find you online? It's easy peasy, birthful.com, birthful.com. And Instagram is what we do most for social media. And that's at birthful podcast. Amazing. Thank you again for being here with us. And at home, thanks for listening to our podcast. For more pregnancy and parenting information, visit us online at informedpregnancy.com. I got a whole lot of questions for you This kid's gonna test my will I got a lot to learn and my baby's too <laughs> This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike Dr. Mom Butt Bomb as a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. 
I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. <laughs> 